today. And um, Joseph has become a friend over the years. We talk about once a month and uh, get in a phone call scheduled, which is just an opportunity to share ministry updates and uh, pray for one another. And our congregation prays for your church. Uh, we have you guys on the list and occasionally get updates from Joseph. Um, and recently we just finished an exposition in Hebrews. Actually, I think last time I was here, um, I taught from Hebrews. And the end of that letter, you have greetings in the Lord. And as you work through those greetings, you realize some of these knew each other well face to face. And some of them are people who've never met one another. Uh, but because they love the same Lord, there's just a degree of affection. There's um, an interest and a desire to care for one another, desire to be with one another. So um, even though we're down the road away, church has uh, a degree of affection and care for this congregation uh, as we would pray for you and uh, just the instrumental role that uh, Joseph and his family played early on in the beginning of Cornerstone Bible Church. So good to be with you guys this morning. And uh, that's great. There's a couple songs we just sang that uh, I listen to a lot, but we don't sing congregationally. Uh, they, were, they were both Sovereign Grace music, and I just got from the app I listened to music on. It gave me my year-end wrap-up, and it said, um, you listen to more Sovereign Grace music than any other artist, and you're in the top half a percent of listeners in terms of volume. So I just thought, wow, that is, I don't know who cares, but I feel like I should get some kind of an award for that or something. So. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll open the word together this morning. Uh, Lord in heaven, you are glorious and mighty, and we are going to sing songs like that in eternity. Uh, we know that even now, although we cannot see them, there are angels gathered around the throne uh, that are repeating uh, praise and worthiness of the Lamb who was slain for us. Uh, Lord, we will, um, even as we've already confessed this morning, uh, stand there blameless uh, not because of anything that we could ever contribute, but because of the great love with which you loved us and uh, because you saw fit to uh, redeem sinners and uh, to make them your own. And so uh, we will praise you in eternity. We want to praise you now. We want to apply, uh, Lord, our minds as we're called to love you with our minds. We want to apply our hearts uh, and our will to come in conformity to your word. And so I pray that you would uh, shepherd us and guide us from the truth together this morning. Uh, Lord, we've come to uh, love the work that you do and anticipate it. As we hear your word proclaimed, uh, you shape us, and uh, we love that work. So shape us now, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, for many years, really as long back as I can remember, I've always loved the church. I was raised in a Christian home, and I was taught uh, by my father, it was modeled by my family, to love uh, the bride of Jesus Christ. And so what that meant was, uh, we belonged to the church. We served in the church. Uh, we were oftentimes there early and then the last ones to leave. Um, I learned a lot uh, growing up in the church. And uh, those were the people that I loved to spend time with. They were my dear brothers and sisters. They were kind of the center and the core of family life. And uh, so growing up, uh, my family had instilled in me that love for the church that that later began to grow in my adult years because it was in the church among God's people where I began to learn uh, doctrine concerning God, how to understand God rightly and uh, form a, a proper theology. It was in the church that I learned how to battle sin. And I had men that would pour into me and teach me what it meant to be a godly man. It was in the church that I learned uh, how to be confronted and confront others. If you've been in the church any length of time, you've probably learned patience, right? You've had to learn how to endure and bear up with others who are different from you. I learned how to forgive uh, in the context of the local church and learned how to uh, interpret the Bible, learned how to love God and worship God. And so uh, the church is, is compelling to me for many experiential reasons, uh, but that's not the most compelling thing about the church. In fact, what's most compelling about the church is Jesus Christ himself, uh, the Lord of the church. See, the church exists for the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves the church. In fact, Jesus gave himself for the church. I mean, just stop and consider Jesus gave himself for the church. He gave his very life for the church. Not only that, but Jesus has sanctified the church through his substitutionary death. Right now, he is providing for his church. So he is the head of his church. Now he nourishes his church. He leads his church. He builds his church. He shepherds his church. Even this morning, whether you're aware of it or not, he is 
interceding as a priest in behalf of his church. He protects his church. He promises his near presence among his people in his church. And the scriptures teach us that he's actually looking forward to a day. How staggering is this? Jesus himself is looking forward to a day when he's going to gather his church to himself. There's going to be a consummation. There's going to be a wedding feast in heaven with the Lamb. See, if you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, uh, you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ by his doing. As what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, it's because he sought you out. It's because you who were once far off have been brought near. You've been shown grace. You've been shown mercy. You've been like the lost coin or the lost sheep that he went and, and brought to himself. And so this morning we are going to look at the church and we're going to look at the church in a very specific way. I don't know about you, but living the Christian life, uh, my brain is like a sieve. And so you put truth in and it's pretty beneficial, but it goes out really quick. It's hard to remember. And so oftentimes in the church, what I find, uh, much like you, is is I come to believe certain things and act on them. And then at times I need to be reminded why I believe what I believe or why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so this morning, what I want to do is remind you why we do what we do as a church. And in particular, in the topic of church membership, I want to look at the church in relation to church membership. So very narrow focus this morning. And how I want to approach it is this way. First, I want to introduce to you and define what we mean when we say church membership. Then I want to lay some groundwork, kind of our our approach to how we're going to study the scriptures this morning. And then I want to demonstrate for you the existence of church membership in the New Testament. Now, this morning, this sermon is going to be part sermon, part classroom lecture. And so for some of you, that is uh, going to be a challenge. You get the opportunity to bear up patiently uh, with the preacher this morning. For others of you, boy, these are your favorite messages. So I know I've got a handful of folks in our church. And whenever I say we're going to have a technical message, uh, they're on the edge of their seat. And those are their favorite messages. They kind of like to geek out on uh, scripture. And that's a good thing. Uh, But this morning, I want to first introduce and define church membership. I want to lay some groundwork for this topic. And then I want to demonstrate the existence of church membership in the New Testament. If I were just to define in a brief sentence, what is church membership? It's to meaningfully define and belong to a local church. That's all that we're talking about here, to meaningfully belong to and define a local church body. You could say it this way, who's in and who's out? Who's in the church and who's not in the church? And what I put for you this morning is regardless of your position on formal membership, Everyone has something that comes to mind when they identify who's in the church and who's out, right? We just had a couple walk through the parking lot here with their dog this morning. And even though they were on the premises, I wasn't considering them a part of the church today and probably neither were you. So we have some criteria by which we're going to determine who is part of the church and who's not. And so you begin to ask yourself, well, who, who comprises the church? Is it those who have attended a certain number of Sundays? Is it those who have a certain level of involvement. Uh, Do we ask people if they're a part of the church or do we just assume it and impose upon them the responsibilities and duties incumbent of belonging to a church? And at one church, they would just figure if you've shown up for a year, then we're going to make you a member. Like it or not, whether you said you wanted to be, if you've been coming for a year, we're just going to immediately assume you're a member. So this is an important question, and if we were to make it concrete this morning, I would just ask, who comprises the church at Grace and Truth Bible Church? Who comprises the church at Grace and Truth Bible Church? Or said another way, who has chosen to make themselves accountable here? Or for whom will the leaders give an account for shepherding? Who's involved in approving future leaders? Uh, who's involved in affirming the doctrine and the direction of the church. See, what you realize immediately is that without defining who comprises the church, it simply doesn't make sense. Uh, We must do this. And so fundamentally, church membership means defining the church body. Who's a part of the church and who is not? 
fair to state this definition then in just a little bit more detail and kind of take that, that brief definition and expand it a bit, it would be this. Church membership is a formal relationship of a believer with a local church. Church membership is a formal relationship of a believer with a local church. In this relationship, the church affirms a believer's profession of faith in Jesus and takes on the responsibility to care for their soul. In this formal relationship, the church affirms a believer's profession of faith in Jesus and takes on the responsibility to care for their soul. Each member voluntarily commits himself or herself to the congregation and its leaders. See, church membership is, has been assumed uh, by the church for centuries. It was a given for the reformers. It was a given for the Puritans. And today, in many parts of the world, church membership is a given. It's not really a question doctrine, generally speaking, outside of this time in history, and largely not outside of America. See, I think part of why that is, our day particularly in America, is, is that it, it can cut against the grain a little bit. The idea of, of conforming or submitting. Right? And, and can you not relate to that? Just this morning I was confessing to the Lord, Lord, I just, in, in a part of my heart, want to rebel against your standard right now. I just don't want to submit to your authority. I mean, I don't want to call it that until you've humbled my heart, but that's really what it is, right? Just a part of me that, that, that enjoys resisting. And part of what enables this is that we live in a society where Christianity is generally low cost. I have a friend who converted from Islam to Christianity. And uh, when she did that, uh, not only did her family turn their back on her, but they even began to threaten her very life. And so for her, it wasn't merely this kind of maybe I do want to be a part of a church or maybe I don't. It was immediately my entire structure in life has been cut off in identifying with Jesus Christ. And now the only family that I have is the church. And so now every holiday, every support system, every relationship is going to be defined newly because I've suddenly been cut off. See, and I would say that her desire was was somewhat defined by circumstance that this is to be biblically normative for a believer that when God saves you through the gospel of his grace, you change. So you're born again, you get a new heart. And First John says that when you experience the love of God poured out in our hearts, Romans 5, when you understand that free, unearned, undeserved gift of God's love, the result is that now you, you love your brothers and sisters. You love the body of Christ because you love Jesus and you possess his spirit. It's instinctive for the Christian. So if you love Jesus, you love the body. It's a very straightforward concept. I'm sure no one in the room would disagree with that. And then when we begin to talk about the specifics of membership is when we begin to get into some, some challenging discussions. I want to show you this morning uh, from the scriptures how important this topic is. And before we begin to just kind of set the ground rules, I, I understand why some of you might struggle a bit embracing this doctrine wholeheartedly. Probably you have a struggle that, that uh, there are many that would come up, I guess, many struggles, but if I were to take perhaps the most substantive, it would be this. I just don't see church membership in the Bible. I just don't see church membership in the Bible. And, and I appreciate that concern. I appreciate that burden. I understand that. I think a lot of times what's meant by that is, is I don't come to a verse in the scripture that says thou shalt establish church membership in every church. I mean, I've even checked the message in the Amplified Version. I just cannot find that verse. It doesn't exist. And so for those of you who want to honor the Lord and you want to submit your life according to scripture, at times there can be a hesitation. Is this just a man-made doctrine? Is this just kind of a, a way of coercing people into conforming to a certain behavior or ideal that's, that's not actually grounded in scripture? And I would say that's a very important question to ask. It's an important thing to be convinced of. And so what I would say is this, that, that our standard for deriving truth from Scripture is, is not necessarily that it appears explicitly in a single verse, but rather that it is taught. It's laid forth in Scripture itself. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith, if you're familiar with that, is, is a body of a systematic way of expressing truth and begins to address 
the reality that some of the things that we come to understand from Scripture are very easy to understand. They jump right off the page. And other things require a little bit more work to understand. Here's how they phrased it. The whole counsel of God, so that's all of Scripture, concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. So all things pertaining to life and godliness is either expressly set down in Scripture, so it's either plain, it jumps off the page at you in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. They go on to write, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. They're saying not everything in Scripture is as plain as everything else. Not everything is as clear. And so there are some things that the Lord has said explicitly and other things that are clearly deduced from the revelation that he has given us. And so I would put before you this morning that church membership is taught in Scripture. It's, it's just not explicitly taught in the way that we sometimes expect to find doctrine. By way of comparison, maybe just to, to flesh this out for a minute, if, if, um, to, to give you a hook to put this kind of a Bible study on, um, I would ask you by way of analogy to consider the teaching on whether or not the sign gifts are still in operation today. Okay, can you find a verse in Scripture that unequivocally states at the end of the apostolic age, the supernatural sign gifts will go out of existence as given to individuals? I have yet to find that verse. It doesn't exist in Scripture. And yet I believe that the, the sign gifts have ceased. Well, how did we come to that conclusion? See, to understand properly whether or not the sign gifts have ceased requires understanding the nature of miracles in the Old Testament. To understand the full biblical history beginning with the garden. How, how did miracles unfold? How were they utilized? How did they accompany revelation? And you have to understand Jesus' stated purpose for doing miracles. And you have to understand the apostles' stated purpose for doing miracles. You had to understand the office of the apostle in the New Testament, the prophetic role in the church. You have to study where the gifts show up in the New Testament. And so to establish the truth, which is in fact true, that the sign gifts have ceased, requires studying the scriptures comprehensively on the issue. You cannot find one verse and suddenly understand all that needs to be understood about that teaching. I would say even a step further is that the reason why there's not one verse that states that is because it was a truth that was assumed. It was a truth that was assumed. It was expected. See, it was expected that because sign gifts were temporary uh, and in terms of being given to individuals, it did not have to be stated explicitly that they would end. Yet it's implied, it's inferred by the nature of the gifts themselves. And so when we begin to look at the doctrine concerning church membership this morning, what I want to show for you from the scriptures, and, and this is a thrill to me because it grounds our practice back in the text of scripture, that it is implied, it is assumed, it is necessitated. And because it's assumed, it's not spoken of explicitly, and yet it frankly appears all over the New Testament. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a prescription. I'm not going to give you a prescription this morning on how to implement church membership. What we're talking about is that the Bible teaches that the church body is to be defined. That's what we're talking about that the Bible teaches. So whether you have a membership class or not, it's up for your church to decide. Whether or not you have an application and an interview process and how that works, that's up for your church to decide. Whether you have to sign a doctrinal statement, whether you have to go before the church, those are all practical matters that are not spoken of in Scripture. But what is plain, and this is going to be the thesis that we demonstrate this morning, is the, the wonder and the requirement and the benefit of defining the church body. Church of God exists in local congregations with established boundaries. And we're going to walk through this together this morning. Uh, three places church membership shows up in the New Testament. If you're keeping an outline this morning, very simply, we have three places church membership shows up in the New Testament. Three places church membership shows up in the New Testament. You could call this sword drill Sunday. If you grew up in the church, you probably conducted sword drills. And that was always a thrill to demonstrate before everyone how much faster you could find a Bible verse than everyone else in the room, to the glory, of course, of Jesus Christ. 
So rather than camp in one passage this morning, which is uh, our normal standard operating procedure at Cornerstone, as I know it is here as well, we're going to be thumbing through the New Testament, and we're going to demonstrate three places that church membership shows up in the New Testament. I'll give you all three points up front, and then I'll repeat them as we go. Number one, practices from the church imply it. Practices from the church imply it. So we're going to walk through the practices of the early church, and we're going to see that these imply membership. Secondly, we're going to look at metaphors for the church in the New Testament. Metaphors for the church, and they point to it. Metaphors for the church, they point to it. Thirdly, we're going to look at instructions to the church, and they necessitate it. Instructions to the church, and they necessitate it. Three places church membership shows up in the New Testament. Number one, practices from the church, they imply it. Number two, metaphors for the church, they point to it. And number three, instructions for the church, they necessitate it. So this first point, practices from the church, they imply it. To imply something is this. It is to strongly suggest the existence of something not expressly stated, to indicate by association rather than direct statement. Okay? So what we're going to see here is that church membership is implied by the practices from the church. This is to strongly suggest the existence of something not expressly stated to indicate by association rather than direct statement. You and I do this all the time. Want a quick example? Let's say that that we are eating dinner and you say to me, please pass the salt. You are implying that you're about to salt your food. You didn't say it explicitly. You didn't say, I'm going to salt my food now. But because we're sitting at the table, because you have a plate of food in front of you, because you're asking for seasoning, you're indicating to me that you're going to season your food whether you ever said you are or not because you just said, pass the salt. And so as we begin to observe the practices of the apostolic church, we're going to find that the body of Christ is always a defined group of people. It was always thought of in that way. Church membership is implied here in that way. So grab your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You don't have to stand up when you turn there. We're not actually doing a sword drill. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. We're looking at the practices of the church that would imply a defined body. Verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Jumping down to verse 47, the apostles and the disciples were praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Turn over a couple of pages further to Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number. Multitudes of men and women. So what is implied by this language? Well, this is, this is actually math terminology that's being used. Adding and numbers, accounting terminology. And so this means something. Notice what Luke is not saying. And that day, more people believed and then there were more believers. Why not just say there were more people being saved? Why not just say there was X, Y, Z number of visitors or X, Y, Z number of regular attenders or X, Y, Z number of salvations? No, they say that these believers were being saved. They were being baptized and they were being added to the number. There's something implied about the consistent language of adding and numbering. Now, again, if those were the only verses that we had, we wouldn't establish a doctrine from that. But what we're saying is because this is assumed that it's a defined group, we're going to find language that's consistent all over to affirm this. So you see the practice of admitting new believers into the fellowship. So all of these practices, when they had a new believer, they would put them into a defined group. Not only that, but the church would then make decisions as a defined assembly. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 2. And we see the, the church, the assembly, the congregation making decisions as a defined fellowship. Acts chapter 6, as you remember, there was a problem there with widows being overlooked in the distribution of food. 
Acts chapter 6, verse 2, so the twelve summoned the congregation. They called together the assembly. We're going to have a church meeting to talk about some church business. Later in verse 5, we read, after the apostles gave their game plan to solve the issue, this word pleased, quote, the whole congregation. See, what you see here is that the twelve knew a defined group that they were going to call together. They operated, in a sense, as a unit, um, as a whole, a single assembly. And the congregation knew who their leaders were. So there's definition to this uh, issue that, that when they needed to make a decision and conduct church business, they knew who was to get an invitation to that meeting and who was to be a part of the affirmation and the decision. Now, some of you like things organic. And I don't mean your food. I just mean you like you like to keep things organic. And it feels like as soon as we put paper, it kind of messes up the spirit, you know? We need to keep things organic. Well, interestingly enough, in the New Testament, they actually had lists, okay? Some of you are a bit averse to lists. You don't like them. You probably would benefit from them. People in your family would probably appreciate if you would use a list more frequently. Uh, some of you are list Nazis. We're afraid of you because you, when we're on your list, I mean, you get things done. But I want to show you in the New Testament that, that the, the New Testament church actually actually had lists. First Timothy 5, 9. Just a brief little reference. Again, we're kind of pulling out some obscure verses this morning, which is kind of enjoyable as we form this doctrine. Apostle Paul is talking about the care of widows in the church. And he's saying there that the church is uh, only to put a widow on the list. Verse 9. If she doesn't have family to take care of her and if she was a godly lady. So what he's saying there is that there was some kind of list. We don't know if it was papyrus or what they were writing on, but they had a, a system of organization where they're putting pen to paper and they were keeping track of needs in the church. Today we use spreadsheets a lot of times for things like that. But there was organization. There was structure. So in these practices so far, we see that new believers are admitted into a defined congregation. We see that when uh, church business needs to be made, the congregation defined is called together. We see that there are lists happening that define relationships. And then I'm not going to have you turn to these, but I'll list the references. The, the church would practice commending believers from one congregation to another. They would practice commending believers from one congregation to another. So Apollos was commended by a letter to be welcomed by the church in Acts 18.27. So you can jot down Acts 18.27 to look at later. Apollos is sent with a letter. Phoebe is told uh, to be received, or the church is told to, be, to receive Phoebe, excuse me, in Romans 16.1. And Aristarchus in Colossians 4.10 is to be welcomed by the church. What's happening here? Well, there's a recognition that you have... Uh, independent local congregations, and that as one church is saying, we are affirming the doctrine and life of this believer, we're now sending them with commendation to be received into another fellowship. Churches were encouraged to receive them and to receive them into the fold, to welcome them into the fold. Last practice that we see here of the church that demonstrates this is simply understanding the letters of the New Testament were sent to identifiable, for the most part, congregations. See, it only makes sense to be addressing a letter to a church if you can define who the church is. Letters were written to Corinth, Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, the Galatian churches, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, and on and on. So who gets the letter? Well, whoever comprises the church. My friends, before we go on to the next point, let's pause and just reflect on what we have seen. We just read these passages, and just like being asked to pass the salt and know that someone is going to salt their food, what we've seen implied through these practices is a defined congregation. New believers are admitted into a fellowship. Decisions were made as a defined fellowship. Lists were formed and organized to define relationships within the fellowship. New believers were commended, or excuse me, believers in their traveling were commended from one defined fellowship to another. 
And then finally, churches were written letters as identifiable bodies. So when you read this, what you see is that that there was clarity on who belonged and who didn't. And so church membership is clearly implied. That's our first point. The practices of the church imply membership. These are now bringing us to our second point. The second place that church membership shows up in the New Testament, and these are metaphors. Metaphors. Metaphors are are word pictures. Uh, They're ways of making an analogy by which you're going to relate two concepts to one another. And so what we're going to see here are these uh, metaphors. For example, uh, in Scripture, you know how a metaphor works. When, when the Apostle Paul says that he has a thorn in his side, you know he's not talking about he's out picking blackberries and he got stuck. No, he's speaking about something that is irritating and painful and unrelenting, and because it's in his side, it's impacting life, everything he tries to do. And so by that one little metaphor, I have a thorn in my side, we then can understand the the concept that he is relating to by way of metaphor. And so it is with the church. And these, these metaphors are wonderful. I hope that as you are reminded of these metaphors, it's just a joy to you the way God describes his people. Look with me at Acts chapter 20 and see one of these metaphors for the church. Acts chapter 20. What's happening in Acts 20 is the Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. Uh, They're there on the shores of Miletus. It's an emotional time. Paul's passing the baton of ministry. He's speaking about his ministerial life. He says in verse 25 of Acts chapter 20, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now men, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. See right there, Paul interchanges church and flock. They're in the same reality. He calls the church the flock of God. And this reference has the definite article. He doesn't say a flock, but rather the flock. He's speaking specifically of the church defined in Ephesus. This is the same way that Peter will talk in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So I want you to stop for just a second and think about the metaphor of a flock. What is a flock? It's a defined group of sheep. It's a defined group of sheep, a sheep that that inhabit a fold, right? Where we live out in the valley, there's sheep farmers everywhere and they put up these little fences. And so each flock is going to be defined. It's going to be fenced. Uh, There's going to be an owner. And in this case, the owner is God himself. First Peter five, it's the flock belonging to God. And so the picture here of of a flock is is a group that is united first metaphor is that of a flock. The next metaphor that we find is the metaphor of a body. The metaphor of a body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. So what is a body? Well, you all have a body here. right? It's a, it's a single unit that has many parts and many members that make up that body. One body, many parts belonging to one another. And so when, when you step back for just a moment, if we were to say we're not talking about the church, but I said I want you to understand something uh, by way of analogy. I want you to look at this and I want you to think of it as sheep that are part of a flock. I want you to think of it as uh, parts of a body that belong together. You would immediately recognize that there is diversity and there is unity. There's a corporate reality and an individual reality. There's a whole and there are parts. And so if you were to consider how it is that God could have described us and our relationship to him, he could have said that believers are like trees 
You just kind of exist. Not in relationship with others. Or perhaps uh, stars in the sky or something that doesn't have a defined relational boundary. Rather, believers are said to be flocks and bodies. Two metaphors that God uses for the church. And so when you picture that immediately, what it begins to tell you is there's interdependency here. Uh, There is a sense of belonging. Uh, There's strength. There's protection. There's oversight. And so what's what's not demonstrated then is the notion or the picture of, of a sheep existing by itself, not a part of a flock. Or a, a random pinky finger just hanging out over here by itself doing its thing that's not attached to a hand that's attached to an arm that's part of a body. See, my friends, when you look at how Scripture begins to lay out and describe God's people, there is this unified gathering of saints that the Lord works in and among and through. They are, they are very much the gift of the church. So I hope that you see how the Scripture is laying this out for us. Uh, Just a reminder, hopefully something that you already believe and this is just an encouragement or perhaps you're still wrestling through that it's starting to give you the categories of of how we derive this teaching from practices of the church that imply it to metaphors of the church that point to it. But our third place that church membership shows up in the New Testament is instructions to the church and these necessitate it. I'll put it this way. You just simply cannot make sense of several responsibilities God has given to the church without defining who belongs and who doesn't. So so these necessitate identifying the body. The word that we'd use here for for deriving meaning is to infer. Okay, so we talked about what it means to imply something. Uh, to infer is to dedu- to deduce something by way of inference. And so if right now I, I clapped my hands and all of you looked at me, I would deduce by that that you have the ability to hear. Okay, he didn't come in this morning. He said, you know, hi, my name's Dan and I have the ability to hear. But I was able to deduce it very obviously that when I clapped my hands and you gave me your attention, you heard what happened and therefore you looked up. And so when we begin to look at instructions to the church, that they're to carry out these infer membership. You cannot figure out how to carry them out without it. First instruction that we see is, is that of mutual accountability between a congregation and its leaders. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We see here that the body of Christ has definition. Toward the end of this letter, Really a sermon letter. The author writes in his final exhortations in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning. For this would be unprofitable for you. Simple question. The author of Hebrews talks about your leaders that you're to relate to in a certain way and your leaders who are to relate to you in a certain way. How do you make sense of that without defining who they are? And what a protection that is. I mean, the scripture is not willy-nilly talking about who you must submit to. I mean, do you understand that that's even a grace and a benefit? And here in the, the language of, of keeping watch over your souls was, was that of a watchman. Uh, the one that got tasked with staying awake all night so that the rest of us could sleep and making sure that everyone was guarded and protected. And so the picture here is that God has assigned in the church the role of some to metaphorically stay awake at night looking for danger to protect Who? Those who are going to give an account. Those who are going to give an account. Peter gives a similar language when he's talking about the body in 1 Peter 5 when he says to shepherd the flock. And he says those that are allotted to your charge. When you understand how incredible this instruction is and what a blessing it is, a grace in your life. 
I mean, I rejoice in this. The Bible refers to the leaders over the church, certainly as elders, as overseers, but primarily in the language that we use here is, is pastor. And you understand that, that, that a pastor is not your priest. And a pastor is not your pope. The pastor is not merely someone who stands in front of you and talks each week to you. Pastor is not someone who has personal authority over your life. Pastor simply means shepherd. That's the one who loves and serves and cares for the sheep. Those who've, who've been delegated to his charge to feed and to guard and to protect and to lead and to care for. And so the Bible expects that sheep know their shepherd and shepherds know their sheep. There's no way to meaningfully fulfill this obligation unless you can define who comprises the flock. And this type of language appears elsewhere in Scripture. You can jot it down. I'll read it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. Paul says to the church, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. See, Paul's describing a wonderful relationship here. A relationship of love and mutual respect between the leaders and the people. A church that's characterized by peace. And yet some are charged with management, with care for the church in that way. And then there's accountability to those leaders. Now, think about our ecclesiology here. You're accountable this morning to submit to the truth insofar as what I'm saying is actually derived from Scripture. Okay? I am accountable to the Lord to cut it straight. Right? I need to be faithful in my interpretation of the Scripture. I need to make sure that I'm not saying things the Scripture doesn't say or leaving things out that would be uncomfortable to say. But that's where our relationship ends. And I'm not going to give an account for your souls. I'm not called to shepherd this church. I have a flock I'm called to tend for, and it's not this one. Right? And, and actually, you don't have to submit to me. Right? I, I have no... Uh, spiritual authority over you. I have no spiritual authority over this congregation because this is not my church. And so when you read these passages, you begin to see that the relationship is clearly defined between a congregation and its leaders, those who the leaders will give an account for. Not only that, not only is the church instructed in terms of how the leaders are to care for those allotted to their charge and those who are in the church to submit to their leaders, but how do you make sense of the instruction to put people outside of the church? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and say, if we're going to obey the scriptures, sometimes it means putting people outside of the church. Apostle Paul had to deal with a lot of squirrely issues at the church in Corinth. We find things that appear in that letter that don't really appear in many other epistles in the New Testament. Chapter 5, uh, he's dealing with an immoral problem in the church that's being tolerated. He goes on and he says in verse 11, I'm now writing to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Are you not to judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God will judge. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, how do you obey that verse? How could you possibly put someone outside who hasn't been welcomed in? So he's talking about removing from among yourselves, which meant that at some point this person had identified as being an insider. They had belonged. Otherwise, he would just be saying something like, don't let unbelievers into your worship service. Right? And that's not what we do. Uh, someone comes in and they don't know Christ. We hope that they hear the gospel. We hope that they hear the message of salvation and they repent and believe. They encounter the, the risen Lord among us on the Lord's Day. That's uh, one of the purposes of the gathered church, primarily for equipping the saints, but also for proclaiming the gospel. So we welcome unbelievers to come and sit in and listen and hear the word of God preached. So what's Paul saying there? Well, he's saying it changes when it's an insider. And someone who belongs to the body that's living in an immoral lifestyle. Now get that guy out immediately. 
So you have instructions here on dealing with sin in the church. In Matthew 18, you can read it this afternoon and remind yourself, talks about telling unrepentant sin to the church and then putting someone outside of the church. Again, that definition there of identifying who belongs and who doesn't and then in great sobriety and difficulty, even removing someone from the body. They had to belong first. So we have instructions given to us for how leaders will relate to people and how people will relate to their leaders. We have instructions for putting people outside of the church. And then finally, we have instructions given to the body. Chris just read some from Romans 12. But to serve one another, to use our spiritual gifts to help one another and to preserve unity among one another. You're to just jot down the references. You're to use your spiritual gifts for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. You're to use your spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. You're to serve one another. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. The idea that you have a family, you've been given gifts. Uh, the Spirit has graced you with grace to benefit others. You're to promote peace within the body. Romans 16. You're to promote peace within the body, Romans 16. You're not to divide the body, 1 Corinthians 3, with preferences or pride or separating from the group. And then you're to build the body through love, Ephesians 4.16, what every single joint supplies. Now just think for a moment, you can only carry those out in one congregation. You can only carry that out in one body. Actually, I was talking with a guy uh, this week, uh, I feel like I don't have a lot of new conversations where someone says something that actually catches me off guard, and this guy did it. Um, after explaining to me how he's actually a part of three churches, and I was beginning to confront that issue, he said, no, listen, I take church membership seriously. I'm on, I'm on the membership role of all three churches. And I thought, okay, i got to just, just gather my thoughts for a second to think of what is going to come out of my mouth next. But the idea of, of preserving unity, serving one another, using your spiritual gifts, not dividing the body, building the body up through love, Submitting to your leaders, submitting to one another out of love, maintaining a pure church only makes sense in the context of a single congregation. And so, my friends, you've seen so far now this morning, uh, I hope that, that church membership, although it's, it's not written in one explicit verse, is actually assumed in Scripture. And so then what we can begin to see is practices and metaphors and instructions that imply it and point to it and even necessitate it. Now, what I would encourage you this morning in is this. We live in a society of broken relationships, broken families, negative environments. And the church is to be a place that demonstrates love and commitment and unity that's actually a testimony to the love of God. See, the church puts on display the gospel. It puts on display the gospel in the way that we relate to one another. And when people come in and they see what is it that unites you, well, it's, it's not that we have the same interests and the same hobbies. It's not that we have the same background, but... We share a common salvation. We, we share a common commitment to the Lord and to his word. So this morning, as you hear a message like this, I would just even ask you to consider, where do you stand in all of this? Uh, some of you are members this morning, and you believe all of these things, and it was just good for you to be reminded of why it is that you do what you do. Some of you maybe haven't joined the church in a formal sense, but you're essentially functioning in that way. So you say, this is my church home. This is where I belong. It's where I serve. Uh, I love the people. I just haven't formally made that commitment. Others of you might be sitting here today and you say, you know what? I'm just not sure yet that I'm ready to commit to a local church. And I would say there are good reasons for that. And there are not so good reasons for that. And if you're still trying to understand the church, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, to understand uh, both your view from the scriptures as well as what the church believes. And so if you're in that spot, then I just want to give you an encouragement this morning. The first thing I would encourage you with is this. Joining a church is not coercive. Joining a church is not coercive. You see, if you're joining out of some external pressure, you shouldn't do it. You're to join a church because it's, it's a joyful privilege. That's something that you desire for, that you see the importance of from Scripture, and you just long to be a part of it. That to unite with a church is something that's done with a clear conscience, and it's done voluntarily. Secondly, I'd encourage you, if you're not fully on board with the ministry here at Grace and Truth Bible Church, then don't join the church. It's actually important that 
that you are a, a born-again Christian, that you agree with the church's doctrine and their practice. And so I'd say if, if you're sitting here and you say, you know, this is a place that I come on Sundays, but I don't know that I'm actually willing to sit under the preaching and submit to it. I'm not sure that I'm really willing to commit myself in love and service to this group of people. And I would say don't join the fellowship out of an external compulsion. See, meaningful church membership means that we aren't just checking a box or going through the next step that we think we're required to do, but rather we understand to say wholeheartedly and with one mind, we want to unite in love with this body. And then finally, if you're in a spot where you kind of maybe are thinking, I'm just going through this for a season, right? I, um, I could never really understand those people. I might offend some of you when I say this, but the people that would say, you know, I'm, I'm dating a person and yet I'm telling all my friends I would never marry this person, but just kind of for a season I'm going to date them. All right, so maybe you're in a spot where you'd say, I'm never going to join Grace and Truth Bible Church. Uh, I'm just attending here for a season. Uh, then I would just encourage you lovingly, this is not with a heavy hand, but for your sake and for theirs, to find a church that you can join. Uh, that is good for your soul. I would encourage you to go find another church and join that one. Not as an ultimatum, uh, but just as a loving encouragement of the benefits and the, the biblical necessity of belonging to a church body. Well, I know that it takes uh, time to find a church to commit to. Personally, when I was uh, not pastoring a church, I did a lot of research. I think I wore guys out. Uh, pastors trying to ask questions uh, before I would join. Um, I came in probably maybe overstepping at times with all my list of questions. Uh, but it came because there was a high view of that commitment to a local church and wanting to take it seriously. Um, I would say this then, being a part of the body of Christ uh, is a tremendous privilege and a benefit. And uh, it is a protection to your soul in ways that you're probably not even always aware of. Uh, because God's design, he has designed that uh, both for you to be a ministry to others and for you to be ministered to. And uh, Jesus loves his church very much. It's a good place to be a part of his body. Uh, will you pray with me this morning? Lord in heaven, I thank you for your church. As I started speaking about my love for the church, uh, Lord, um, it's genuine. And uh, to think that my love for the church is a just a mere human love. It's one that's flawed by weakness and um, bad practice and bad thinking at times, and uh, yet your love for ch the church is um, a pure love, a redeeming love, uh, a covenant love. And so, Father, I thank you for um, sending Jesus uh, to purchase us. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would be um, building your church here at Grace and Truth Bible Church. Uh, Lord, you have been, and it's been a thrill to watch that. We know that that's not uh, the work of mere mortals, uh, but that's the work of God by his power and his uh, sovereign will. Father, I pray that you'd be working in the hearts of uh, the people here, that you would be growing their love for one another, uh, that they'd be sh keeping short accounts over pettiness and offenses. Uh, Lord, that they would uh, be obedient in terms of serving and uh, caring for one another. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for um, even the rich fellowship that I enjoy every time I come here, the warmth and uh, the evident love uh, put on display that people have for you uh, for your for your uh, work and for one another. And so we, we give all these things to you in your precious name. Amen.